Welcome to the Artisan Situation Podcast. Happy New Year, everyone. I'm excited to bring another episode of the Artisan Situation Podcast um, into 2017. Today we're going to talk about the apple. Adams County, Pennsylvania has become a major apple growing region, becoming home to growers, processors, and cider makers of all sizes. Nobody's hand is more on the pulse of this community than our guest today, Ben Wank of Three Springs Fruit Farm. His family has been farming the land in Adams County since 1901 and has seen the apple industry grow from its nascent beginnings into a burgeoning industry. Ben has a deep sense of responsibility for his local community. He tells his story one apple at a time in Pennsylvania, at markets, in restaurants, all throughout Philadelphia, D.C., and Baltimore. Now Ben is translating his knowledge of apples to cider making as he begins his new venture into hard cider called Plowman Cider. In late November 2016, we sat down in his old family farmhouse with his dog playing in the background and got right to it. What makes the apple so great? I will let Ben tell you. This is Ben Wank of Three Springs Fruit Farm and Plowman Cider. Listen in. But so, uh, yeah, so we can get started. Sure. Um, do you, would you like to just introduce yourself and say what you're up to these days? I guess you've got lots of things you're up to these days. Yeah, <laughs> I, I always seem to put myself in a position of doing all this crazy stuff. So um, I'm Ben Wank. Uh, with Three Springs Fruit Farm and Plowman Cider. We're here in uh, Adams County, Pennsylvania, the heart of the fruit belt. And uh, I'm a seventh generation farmer here in, in this part of the county. Uh, we have a, a, a farm that's about 450 acres altogether, uh, 250 of which is apples, which I'm suspecting will be the, the a lot of our time will be discussing apples because that's kind of the thing I nerd out on the most. But <laughs> Um, we do a lot of farmers markets in uh, DC, Baltimore, Philadelphia, and here in the local area. Do some delivery wholesale. Um, we still sell to uh, fruit packers and fruit processors here in our county as well. Um, and uh, yeah, the new, the the kind of new enterprise is uh, Plowman Cider, and that's uh, it's taking up a lot of my time these days as we get ready to bottle our first release here in the next. 10 days or so and so yeah getting lots, exciting around here lots yeah, of new things yeah there's well my 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 dad Dave uh, 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 he's co-owner of the farm with my uncle John and dad's famous for saying if the shark isn't swimming it's dead so we always try to try to keep things moving by the time you're you're stagnant by the time you think that you're in a place where you can coast you're just you're falling behind so we always try to kind of think of what's coming next and and uh, yeah, keep keep working on something new. And it's kind of, I think it's fun that we're in your family's house right now because um, it's kind of, you know, you got the Plowman Cider, which is coming in. It's a new project, but you also have the old, you know, you have this, this family tradition. I think 1901 was when uh, your farm was founded, correct? And yeah, that's, that's um, when we bought, uh, that's when my great, great, grandfather Ferd bought the farm which we're still farming today that was uh, beside a little dot on a map 
from the 18th century that said Three Springs was. So that's kind of how we came up with the name of the farm. We have an old surveyor's map, and on the on the map where our farm uh, sits in what's now colloquially referred to as Wanksville, um, is a little dot that says Three Springs, and so that's kind of where the name of Three Springs Fruit Farm came. Uh, we've been farming since the 1820s, but um, we've been on the same ground since 1901. That's really, I mean, it's it's fun to see. It seems like there's, um, you know, there's a lot of family farms that have been around for a long time, but it seems like that might be dying out a little bit. Do you, are you concerned about that, or do you think that there's still um, still some family farms that are hanging in there? And well, um, I think I think both are true. I think here on the East Coast we have we have the advantage of, of geography. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the reasons we, we chose to do some farmer's markets in some of the large urban areas that surround us is, you know, really they don't have farmers of their own other than us, you know. Um, that's kind of what a local farm looks like for a place like Washington, D.C. is here in Adams County, Pennsylvania. And um, with, you know, they're increasing the the residential and uh, commercial and industrial development of the counties between here and there. And it just makes our clo- our um, <laughs> makes our <laughs> farm closer and closer to DC all the time or DC closer and closer to us, depending on how you want to look at it. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think that uh, you know family farms that are, positioning themselves to take advantage of their geographic proximity to some of these places are putting themselves in a position to succeed and to, and to carry on that, that agricultural tradition. But um, certainly the kind of mass consolidation in agricultural commodities and uh, you know kind of playing on that big scale can be difficult. Um, Certainly, if we're going to talk about apples, and I suspect that we are, you know, it's, um, that's kind of like, you know, Washington State's kind of the big 800-pound gorilla in, in apples in the United States, and for good reason. When you go out there and visit, they're, they're operating on a completely different scale than what we have. Uh, you know, a, a medium-sized farm in Pennsylvania would be the smallest farm in, in Washington, and, and our, our largest growers would be kind of in the middle of the pack for what um, the size of operation is out in Washington State, and um, they really have an economy of scale that we can't keep up with. So my way of thinking, and I'll, I'll give my, my buddy Matt Harsh some credit for this. He was the one who taught me about this, and it was the first and most important lesson that I learned about really anything having to do with agriculture is you can really only sell something two ways, and that doesn't matter if it's hard cider or if it's onions and garlic or apples or peaches or anything, you can sell it on price or you can sell it on differentiation. And for our geographic proximity to some of these urban areas, um, it's, it's kind of a losing battle to try to be the cheapest guy on the marketplace. You know, you've got to differentiate yourself. And, you know, we're lucky that here on the East Coast, we have a clientele that, that cares about the quality of food and beverage that they're making a part of their lifestyle. And so that differentiation is a story you can tell and be successful. Um, you know, we'll never, we'll never make it as cheaply as, as what they do. They just have a whole cost, again, economy of scale in terms of how cheap they can produce their fruit. 
and in turn they can put it on the marketplace cheaper and it's just it's it's just not feasible for us to to compete with them so you know rather than fretting about what we're going to do with our apples to compete on that scale we're taking a lot of that responsibility ourselves doing the selling and marketing of it all ourselves and you know taking that story of differentiation what makes our product unique on the road and and having some success doing that so and uh you know your family um long history and it seems like you guys have clearly been doing a great job because i see you guys everywhere in so many markets um it's really fun to see um you know going to school not that far down the road and i go to baltimore or i go to dc and i see you guys you're you're very active in these these large urban areas and markets um, what made you guys, uh, do you know, like the family story that got you guys started in Apples? What was it that made you guys focus on Apples? Was it the property that you got that it, it had these these Apples already in place? Or was this kind of a start from scratch kind of operation? Sure. Well, um, you know, the, the story with Apples here in Adams County is a, is a history that has about a, 100 years of tradition behind it at this point, probably more. Um, for us, the first Apples were planted by my great-great-grandfather, Ferd. Uh, planted four acres of apples to kind of be a companion to his greater uh, grain, livestock, diversified farm operations kind of in that early 20th century kind of window, which is about when the the apple industry at large took off here in Adams County. And um, the reasons that, that apples continue to be um, successful here in our county, and, and Adams County is the... Uh, by our numbers, the fifth largest apple producing county by volume in the United States. Um, so apples are something we do well and uh, do uh, often, I don't, I don't know, but uh, um, I think a lot of that has to do with our, our microclimate and our, our kind of um, topography, I guess you would say. Um, the fruit belt, as we call it here in the Adams County, is like a little kind of crescent or rainbow shape that aligns with the southern facing slopes of the South Mountain. It kind of runs a band from the, from, the, from the southwest corner of the state up here to where we currently sit at the very northernmost part of Adams County and on out east towards York County and, and the, the York Springs and area and on towards uh, Route 15. And um, this, this past growing season here in, in 2016, this spring, was I think a great example of, of what makes apples so successful in Adams County. We experienced some really, really cold temperatures right around bloom time. Um, I think it was, what, 19 degrees? I think it might have been like, yeah, about the 16th. about kind of uh, frost affecting the... Exactly, yeah, which, which puts, our, it puts our blossoms at, at risk. That was when the blossoms were out. Um, conventional wisdom and studies have shown that for every, what is it, every hour uh, under... 28 degrees when the blossoms are exposed is supposed to reduce your crop by 10 percent well i was leaving a uh farmers on the square board meeting in carlisle and i got in my truck and it was already 26 and the blossoms <laughs> were out and you know it's only going to get colder until morning so they're right there that you know that was easily 10 hours under that temperature threshold which by university verified research should have eliminated the whole apple crop here in Adams County. But again, uh, going back to what makes Adams County unique and makes it such a hub for apple growing 
is those those hillsides that, that are on the southern facing slope, um, you know, that cold air drains down into the creek bottoms and it kind of holds there and starts filling up from the lowest point like a vase. Mm-hmm. And generally speaking, we don't plant those creek bottoms. We plant on those hillsides. And when that cold air drains down, that keeps that cold from having a convectionary freeze on the blossoms. And so, you know, generally it, those creek bottoms stay really, really cold. And then the, the morning sun rises and, and, and it breaks that convection and, and, and the air starts moving and things are good. And that had to have been what saved the Adams County apple crop this year. Now, of course, saved it temporarily from the perils that would befall it in the summer. And <laughs> it's a really terrible growing season. So we were glad to have fruit when we thought we'd lost it all. But the, the, the crop was not good at all in Adams County this year. Um, <laughs> so your dog's trying to get in this podcast. Yeah, yeah Rose is, she, uh, she has a... A desire to be in the spotlight all the time and so she's she's lurking around and and trying to trying to put her little footprint on this this interview here but um so uh yeah so we were i think those cold those hillsides and that air drainage in a lot of ways saved our crop for for this year and um generally speaking when there's a, a cold event on the east coast we've seen it in other years too adams county generally i wouldn't say that we're immune to it but we certainly based on our 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 growing conditions our our climate and our our um um, microclimate and our our topography with those hillsides we have some built-in insulation to prevent us from from catastrophic frost losses knock on wood that's the way it's (laughs) supposed to work and so this year it worked and um so that's kind of the main reason behind adams county is like a, a, a east coast hub for apple production so clearly your family was in tune with something early on and uh and now it's kind of sticking around and now you guys um it seems now you got some time under your belt you're even getting more innovative and um utilizing some more interesting you know i know you guys use integrated pest management mm-hmm. um, you work really closely on doing sustainable agriculture um you know kind of give me a little insight on what it takes to be uh, an apple grower i mean i know it's there's definitely some seasonality to it um, but it's a constant uh, battle with the elements, right? And uh, yeah. I don't know, is there, you know, what, what, do you, what do you love about being an apple grower? What is kind of something that really piques well, your interest? Well, one of the things I love about apples um, as just a, a, a general, I mean, it's definitely tied to my job, but just apples in general are very unique that they have such variety recognition. You know, it's, uh, you know, people might know silver queen corn, and they, that I might actually have to stop here. Hold on. Come on, Rose. Okay. Anyhow, they might know Silver Queen corn, they might know Red Haven peaches, but uh, in terms of, you know, nobody knows blueberry varieties except the people that grow them. And, uh, sorry. And, um, but apples have great name recognition. And the reason is that um, apples are very differentiated by their use. Um, so people have their favorite apple pie apples, people have their favorite applesauce apples. So it, it really is kind of unique among a, a lot of, I mean, no, no, again, you know, the whole vegetable world is made up of things that, aside from heirloom tomatoes, people don't really have a lot of variety recognition. And apples are kind of really rare among uh, foods in general in terms of the, the variety 
and uh, usefulness of, of different varieties. And one of the cool things that I've been trying to learn here lately is from groups like the, the North American Fruit Explorers, um, going back and finding some of these American heirloom varieties that had very, very specific uses, um, you know, four and five generations ago, back at the turn of the century. I mean, people had apples for everything from, you know, uh, Sweet Paradise by reputation was the official apple of making schnitz or making dried apples. <laughs> uh, Parmar was the official apple of making brandy, you know, they, like very specific varieties for very specific purposes. and and it's just really fun to go back and kind of discover those things. So that's one of the cool things about apples in general that I, I, I think makes them very unique. And, and to grow them, one of the things that is really exciting is really I, I feel like each, each year you have a chance to do things a little bit better, you know. Um, you're always trying to, to, to find, a, you know, maybe a better nutrition program to prevent certain internal uh, diseases of apples in storage so that they keep better or or you know now we're as as integrated pest management users uh, and practicers we're, we're finding new and different pests that we haven't had to deal with for for years just based on the fact that we're, we're changing our growing practices and and using less toxic materials and all of a sudden we're getting we're getting things pop up that we haven't really seen before and now you know we're, we're going back and learning how to well, relearning how to prevent San Jose scale damage and plum curculio and stuff like that that we really hadn't seen in a long time. And it's, it's you know, kind of a testament to our commitment to, to lower toxicity materials, but it's also, like, it's a whole new problem. So, yeah. um, so you know, so every year you have a chance to do it better, and we're committed to doing it better. And um, that's one of the things that, that keeps this industry kind of fun and full of life is you can always – you can always figure out the next best way to do things and you know you're always planting apples for for years down the road so that uh, you know you plant one year and you really don't have a sizable harvest for another three or four years after that and so um, you know so you're always having new apples come on and 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 you're you're kind of taking them to customers and seeing if you think if they think they're as cool as what you do and do you think what uh, genetics play a role in that? Like kind of the interesting, um, you know, apple genetics that that's paid a role in this, that there's so much diversity within it. Um, you know, I've, I've seen an interview where you were talking about how bananas don't have that genetic diversity anymore and how apples are really cool because they do. Um, is that a part of that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, we have 3,000 named varieties of apples that have been recorded throughout history. Uh, you know, a few of them might be some varying levels of extinct at this point but you know at the same time uh the folks at usda and at uh, the university of i mean cornell university rather in geneva um they've gone back to the source orchards to the mother orchards of kazakhstan and brought back lots and lots of uh um wild genetics so that we can kind of ensure breeding stock for apples for the foreseeable future um so yeah it's uh, unfortunately there's not a whole lot of folks out there doing like like apple breeding anymore in the traditional sense because it, it's it's those those programs have a hard time getting funding but um at the same time there's 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 a renewed interest in a lot of things like like hard cider varieties like bittersweets and bitter sharps uh varieties from other countries that we haven't grown here in the states and and how does that work and, and how are they going to thrive or, or struggle in, in our specific environment? 
Um, you know, there's always things like that that are that are really fun to play around with. I've I've started some small and large scale uh, top working projects. Top working is is the the method by which you can take a living growing apple tree of a certain variety and uh, through some horticultural techniques and grafting change the variety while keeping the tree in place and keeping the tree living in um that's allowed us to kind of get some jump starts on some trials of some apples that we've been told have some favorable characteristics and and uh, we can take some some trees that are maybe varieties that are falling out of favor and, and do some some uh you know kind of speed up the timeline in terms of analyzing them for the qualities we're looking for in apples so um yeah, there's, there's, and speaks a lot to that again, that diversity in genetics and and, and what we can do, and uh, some exciting stuff going on in apples for sure right now. It's a completely different landscape than uh, when I came back from college, even uh, even nine years ago, ten years ago. And so um, I know that you went to school at Penn State. Did that play a major role in kind of your education about um, farming, or did a lot of that education come from just being here on the farm growing up? Or is it kind of, you know, everything's got a combination to it? It's definitely a combination of both. I, I would say that I am a huge proponent of um, learning the sciences. Um, there's generally two competing schools of thought here. <laughs> In, uh, in Pennsylvania in terms of, you know, some folks who, who will send their, their children off to get business degrees and tell them, well, we can teach you how to farm here on the farm, and we'll, we'll send you off to get a business degree and come back. And, and you know, I, I definitely think the other way, and I'm very happy that, that I made the decision to get a, a, an applied sciences degree. My degree is in agroecology with a minor in horticulture, and that you know, I, I use my degree every day. We work with restaurant chefs, and and uh, they've got specific varieties of pumpkins or specific varieties of peppers that they want to grow. I can, with some degree of confidence, based on my, my education and my training, I can say, well, if if it can be grown in Adams County, Pennsylvania, I will grow it for you. Mm. Um, you know, that's we started doing farmer's markets. We didn't grow any vegetables, and now we're growing about eight acres of vegetables, and you know, um, I just had the confidence that, you know, as someone who'd never grown any vegetables, that I mean, not even as a hobby before, not even in like a, a backyard garden. Um, when I started doing farmers markets in 2007, I said, "Well, we need to have ve vegetables to fill out our our display. I can figure out how to grow them. I've got mm -hmm. a degree in this stuff." So, um, I definitely feel like learning the science behind how things grow allows me to kind of have it when I sit in a meeting about some of the the new growing techniques that that might be ideal for for growing apples or peaches or whatever I'm, I'm whatever meeting I'm sitting in in the winter time like I feel like I can absorb more completely the education that I'm being presented based on knowing all the you know my botany classes my uh, genetics classes my uh, environmental horticulture classes at Penn State, all that, all that, the the education I had in college, you know, I feel like I can internalize and have a greater understanding of the applied science that's in these studies that our, our researchers are, are presenting at, at these, um, these winter meetings on, on growing techniques. And, you know, I, I, I'm, again, I just couldn't be a bigger supporter of folks who have an interest in agriculture going out and learning the science and and 
because after all, it, you know, it's in order to, to be ahead of the curve, you shouldn't be educating yourself on what you have been doing. You need to be educating yourself on what you can be doing. Mm-hmm. It's you giving know. yourself the full toolbox to be able to adapt and, and, you know, develop new ideas in any way they want. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's very, very valuable. I don't want to downplay the, the, the value of on-farm education because, you know, there's a lot of wisdom in some of the, the information that's passed down through generations. I mean, I'm uh, more so than anyone, I mean, the, I'm the beneficiary of that is someone who's in a multi-generational family farm. You know, I, I, I've been the very lucky recipient of a lot of that hand-me-down information on things like soil health and soil stewardship and, and fertility and things like that that, you know, we've learned from having done it for so long. But at the end of the day, if you're only going to learn the way your farm grows fruit or vegetables, you know, that's that's just you know, that that's not taking advantage of, of, of everything that, that you could be applying to your operation. One thing I noticed and, and I loved about, um, you know, reading about you guys, you know, a couple of years ago, I went on your website and you have a blog where you're, you detail the, the, you know, a lot of this, the science you're talking about and a lot of the techniques that you use very, very specifically and out in the world to people that they can use that and learn from that too. Is that something that you've been trying to get behind is kind of educating other people about what apples, you know, what apples can do for a local economy, a local community and for a farmer? Is that kind of something that you've taken on your back as something you want to push forward as well yeah i think i think there's there's kind of um two things about that that are important one uh my mom is an educator she's been uh teaching at penn state york for i mean almost my my whole time (laughs) on on earth here so we like to think of education as the second family business here (laughs) um and so i i definitely come by that 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 desire to to educate others for my mom and so that's one way that I'm able to kind of fulfill that part about my personality. That's kind of a very enriching thing that I'm able to do. I mean, just for my own satisfaction, um, is to be able to write like that. But also, it's it's so important um, for a business that sells directly to the public to be transparent about all this stuff. Like it's it's very easy for uh, someone at a farmers market to, to say, "Oh, well, we're IPM growers and." We only spray when we have to. Yeah, well, that's that's true. But um, what what does that actually mean in practical application? Like, what does that actually look like on the farm? And so, for people that have an interest to to know exactly what kind of things go into our growing practices, they can get on our website and go through our blog series and get as nerdy and detailed as they would ever want. And you know, it's. It's you know one thing I think to to go on the road and tell that story, but you know to have people believe it and buy into it, you got to be transparent. You got to be upfront and honest about it, and um, that's just one of the ways we do it. Another way we do it is is with our our certification by the Food Alliance, which I think is uh, really really forward thinking and and uh, unique kind of um, sustainability certification, and that it not only talks about you know conserving soil and water resources like protect the bay initiatives and um reducing our our pesticide use which are two things that are part of you know any sustainable certification that's worth its merit but also deals with farm worker rights 
and uh, socially responsible employers of farm workers and some of the things we do in that realm, like offering health insurance to our, to our crew and negotiating wages and um, some of those initiatives, which I think are, are becoming more and more part of the public discussion in agriculture. It's kind of the social justice issues around some agriculture. Exactly, exactly. So we want to you know, be on the, the kind of the cutting edge of that as well. Um, it's important to us from a philosophical standpoint. And it's, I think, something that our customers are trusting that we're doing on our own. And the Food Alliance certification is a way of verifying that by way of third-party audit, someone coming out and seeing that we're actually doing the things we're claiming Holding to you do. accountable. Exactly. And so I know farmers markets have been a key to kind of your success um, and kind of adapting to those markets. Remember early on, um, you know, you use social media really early on trying to get out there and get people to know about it. You also connect really closely with chefs. Um, what kind of interaction do you have with chefs on a, on a regular basis and how can you integrate, you know, um, apples and how they integrated apples kind of into cuisine um, and it's definitely a part of Pennsylvania the apple so it's kind of really cool to see some of these chefs kind of latch on to the apple yeah yeah it's it's becoming increasingly important part of our business is our relationship with restaurants and restaurant chefs um, uh, we're we're finding that midweek markets for us are are increasingly becoming uh, a tougher sell they're 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 kind of getting a little bit stagnant and of course you know that's our opportunity to sell for the best price that we can the stuff uh, more and not along the apple realm per se but some of our annual vegetables and we we harvest them on on monday and tuesday are usually big harvest days and those aren't products that we want to sell on the weekend because they're not going to be at their their optimal best so that's why we started doing um midweek farmers markets and Increasingly, we've needed to grow more to have on the weekend where we have a large demand for our weekend markets and the midweek markets aren't able to move the volume of stuff that is, is harvested early. And so increasingly, we're kind of working with chefs not only to, to buy our, our kind of surplus supply in the earlier part of the week where we can sell it to them at a wholesale price on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, um, to kind of move that volume before, while it's still at its, its optimal best again. Um, but kind of taking it back even a step further and saying, okay, well, you know, we want to build this relationship with you guys. What do you want us to grow? What, what are you having a hard time sourcing? What would you like to be able to get fresh consistently from a local farm and use on your menu that you don't have access to right now? And letting them kind of take controls of the kind of things that we're growing. And this, this is also on the Apple side, too. We'll get to that in a second. But, um, you know, and, and in so doing, we can kind of talk with the chefs. They kind of explain why this specific variety is important to them. You know, using social media, we'll see the kinds of things they're doing. They'll, they'll you know, be posting uh, kind of finished dishes with our products. And I can be like, oh, wow. So they, they did, you know, a, a white wine poach on, the, on those Bosque pears. That's really cool. I wouldn't have thought to do that. Then I try it myself, and I can take that to our market customers on the weekend and be like, well, you know, this is, this is something that, that our restaurant chefs are doing with this product, and it's not that tough. You can try it at home. And that helps, you know, build value in, in our relationship to the customers, that not only can they count on us, to have a really great, unique product that they can't find somewhere else. But we have the, the knowledge to tell them some of the new and inventive things, some different ideas of what to do with it, 
by the time they get to market. So it's it's not only the product itself, but it's the service aspect of it, that we, we know these products well and we know what they're capable of, we know what makes them special, and we can um, kind of uh, you know communicate that to our farmer's market customers. And the same thing with, with uh, fruits. Um, we had a, a, one of our best pastry chefs was looking for a very specific plum from France um, called Mirabelle, and we were able to um, at, kind of painstakingly go around <laughs> until we could find uh, some stock of that of that plum variety, and now we're in the process of, of grafting that onto trees and growing this really unique, specific variety of plum. Uh, we're doing the same thing for some classic culinary apples, like Bramley Seedling in the UK is the pie apple in the UK. We're we're uh, committing ourselves to increasing our production of those. Uh, and also, um, uh, Colville Blanc de Hiver, <laughs> which is, uh, yeah, Rose really likes the Colville Blanc. It's her favorite. Um, but no, that's that's the, the classic French culinary apple. <sighs> Rosie. And uh, <laughs> and so, I mean, if you're going to make a classic tartetan, that's uh, that's the, the apple that you would choose for that kind of thing. So, you know, really kind of allowing our production to be more chef-driven, um, to build those relationships, and it, you know, helps keep stuff fresh at our weekend markets. It helps us tell the story of what makes our products unique in the weekend markets, and it builds great relationships with chefs. And, you know, and, and fortunately, now as, as a hard cider producer, I have another product that that hopefully will will add to their diner's experiences and make, and kind of helps us and helps them and, and, and builds kind of some continuity in the local economy. It's a really cool thing for restaurants to be able to tell that story to their customers. You know, here, here's, here's uh, you know, a, a, a hash that's made from local apples and, and local root vegetables. And uh, the same apple grower that made those hash is, that made the apples in the hash has produced this beautiful cider that you can enjoy with it. It pairs really well with, with the cheese plate. And then, it's you know, all coming the, from the same place. Yes, exactly. It, it's, it's, and it all makes sense. And, it, you know, it goes back to a little bit of, of, uh, the concept of terroir, which is such a big thing in France, and I think that, you know, this kind of buy local movement and alternative agriculture, sustainable agriculture, is like embracing um, the the idea of terroir, which is, you know, really as food as an expression of soil, which I think is such a beautiful, beautiful idea, and um, increasingly that's that's the kind of thing that that folks are are learning about, they're investing in, and they're and they're starting to think about, well, yeah, you know, Adams County, they make incredible apples. We have you know, unique yeast strains that we're starting to put in our cider production that have been growing and 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 changing for a hundred years. Um, you know, so it, it's it's this idea of terroir is 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 such a cool and and beautiful way to think about things on the farm side of the gate. And increasingly, we're seeing our, our restaurant chefs and certainly uh, their customers and, and the public thinking about that concept a lot a lot more going forward. It seems like, you know, with fearlessness comes opportunity um, and kind of what you're saying. And, and if, if chefs can also embrace that same thing and farmers can embrace that, they can come up with kind of new diverse products that can really change a whole um, industry or a supply chain in terms of kind of how these things move around. I remember we were talking about, you just attended the Artifact Coffee um, Origins um, discussion. Um, down in Baltimore, and you were saying how you know Spike has kind of integrated these types of things into the Woodbury um, kitchen and, and other types of things. Um, do you see that kind of 
um, you know, chefs driving products, but also um, farmers driving products from their fields as well, working both ways is kind of a key to that growth. Yeah, and, and it goes back to uh, kind of, one of the, some of the things we were hitting on earlier. It's like, you know, we, we, we as farms to be successful, we have to build these relationships. Um, you know, it was very common when I was growing up to hear, you know, there was a lot of discussion in, in, in agriculture in general about, you know, American farmers need to feed the world. And, you know, that's incredibly ambitious. And it's also incredibly daunting. And more and more, as I think about my place in agriculture and my responsibility, I believe it's it's more responsible for I need to feed my neighbors. Um, that's the most important thing. We need to build communities, and I can feed my neighbors, and you know we can we can teach others how to produce their own food because it's it's that that to me is is a more responsible rather than than you know overproducing commodities and and changing the economics so that they're still able to be produced that's that's just that it's it's a tough go it's it it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me um so really trying to to focus on you know differentiation and feeding our neighbors with the kind of food that they want to buy um, and, and chefs the same way. Yeah, you definitely, it, you, you're right on the mark with, with, uh, chef spikes goal of, of really kind of, um, I mean, his, his, his sole goal at this point, in my opinion, and, and through, through his actions is really trying to increase the amount of products he can buy from local farms and what an awesome and virtuous plan that is. And it's allowed him to scale things up in ways that I, it it's really really cool and that people have to start thinking about that kind of scale right now it's you know it's it the uh, my opinion the 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 landscape here in, in eastern agriculture in, in the mid-atlantic has got to be um kind of finding your market niche scaling it up and and um you know finding finding what's going to be the the important commodities that people really are interested in and so let's let's go there now with um, cider. You now started um, Plowman Cider, um, brand new, um, fresh, fresh and ready to hit market, right? Um, yeah. And I know that that's like been a new, a new exciting project, but also um, you know a big learning curve for you. Um, is um, you want to just kind of talk about what that project is? And I mean, it seems like the obvious next steps because you have done preserves, um, right, with um, yeah. some canned some canned fruits and jarred fruits and, and jams and things. So it seemed like cider was the next step for you, correct? Yeah, and, and I think there's a lot of different reasons why it makes sense for us. First, I've always had an interest in, in cider. I, I tell the story of one of the, the earliest farmer's markets that we attended in Philadelphia at the Head House Market. Uh, my dad and I were doing market, and we got done, and we got packed up, and we were feeling pretty good about ourselves and decided to, to swing over to the, the local pub there. At the time, it was the Dark Horse. As uh, now Cavanaugh is the head house location, and um, we'd go in there and just have a drink and celebrate before we headed on back home. And uh, at that time, I was still kind of discovering craft beer, and my my first choice in selecting a beverage was to find whatever tap handle I didn't recognize and order it and see what I thought of it. And that particular day, I saw a tap handle that said Strongbow, and I said, "Well, I'll have one of them." 
not even knowing at the time it was a cider. Um, at the time I'd had uh, woodchuck cider and that was about it. And um, uh, they brought they brought a pint out to me and I eyed it up and quickly determined that this doesn't look like beer at all to me and uh, you know discovered that it was a cider, not only a cider but one that was dry, one that I um, you know wouldn't mind having one or two to go with a meal or something like that because it wasn't so sweet. And it kind of opened up my eyes to it. I let my dad try it, and I can remember him saying, well, we could make some of this sometime. I was like, yeah, yeah, we could. <laughs> so uh, not long after that, this was our first year at Farmer's Markets. We had started pressing fresh cider uh, to uh, support those markets with some of the, the apples we were sorting out as we were getting ready for market. It was a nice way to, to um, kind of capture some some of those uh, second-quality fruit into a retail product. And so we're making this fresh cider. It was UV pasteurized or UV treated, which means that pretty much if it goes to market and comes back about twice, even if it's still good on the sell-by date, you should really think about not trying to have it move again. Uh -huh. And so I, I went down to the, the Flying Barrel in Frederick, and I brought back three used bourbon barrels and just started filling them up with this cider that was um, kind of past its optimal selling point and uh, started my little hobbyist experiments with making cider uh, back then with really big still cider out of bourbon barrels, very much just kind of pitching yeast and walking away from it for a long, long time and coming back and being pretty pleased with the results for somebody that didn't spend a whole lot of time and effort in, in, uh, in making it. Uh, I said, well, you know, this is kind of cool. Um, you know, fast forward a few years down the line, I continue to kind of make big, kind of somewhat um, unkempt, like, <laughs> barrel batches and uh, maintain an interest in it. And I kind of saw that the landscape around cider was changing. And our, our friends down the road from literally about a, a mile, maybe a mile and a half from where we sit at Big Hill Cider Works, um, they were really committing to it. They were, you know buying farms with the purpose of putting cider apples on it. They were, you know, applying for their licensure. They were really going to do it. And um, I got to know Troy and Ben real well. And um, we kind of shared a, a desire to, to see apple, like, to be to see cider be a thing here in Adams County. And um, that's when we started the process of really committing to it ourselves by ordering cider trees and, and starting the, the long and somewhat – painful process of licensure here in, in the state of Pennsylvania and the Commonwealth here. And, uh, um, so yeah, um, that's kind of where we started with it and where we're at now. We've got, uh, an incredibly skilled cider maker hired. Uh, Edwin Winsler has been making our cider for us and he's, uh, we couldn't be <laughs> luckier to have him involved. Um, it is, is much more, his tactics are much more refined than, the dumb farmer that was just filling barrels and, <laughs> and walking away. So he's he's got a much better handle on things than, and uh, I really have no desire to to make this stuff myself. Um, he's he's very good at what he does, and he'll put it in the bottle, and it'll be uh, my job to sell it. Um, and uh, it's really exciting, you know, for someone who loves apples as much as I do, and I, I come by it naturally. We've always had a hand in, in growing apples now for, you know, over a hundred years and in, in my family. And, you know, I really think that, you know, that heart cider is, is the 
finest expression of an apple that you can have. And when you love apples as much as I do, I feel like a, a well-made cider is just a beautiful expression of apples. And and uh, and I think the the general public is just now finding out the the kind of different and diverse beverages that that cider can be. You know, from the mm -hmm. the super funky uh, Basque style uh, Spanish ciders to uh, you know the dry English pub ciders and and you know all all of the American craftsmen that are putting their own spin on it with different adjunct flavors and it's really exciting and people are discovering that 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 same as I did back in in two thousand seven that that cider doesn't have to be candy sweet we can we can let hard soda have the candy sweet <laughs> market and we can take this dry. Yes. This dry project and move that forward. Yeah. Do you do you? So is this product called Stark? The new, this first one you're coming yeah, out. Yeah, the first blend is called Stark. It's our first release from Plowman. It's a a cider that that comes in at eight and a half percent. It's uh fermented the dryness. It's a blend of uh, mostly stamen and Asopus Spitzenberg apples. Um, so two American heirloom varieties with very very nice characteristics. The Spitzenberg especially really high sugar, really high acid. That's kind of what kind of pushed those ABVs up a little bit in this first blend. Um, uh, we were able to, to coax, uh, generally coax a lot of like citrus character out of it with some yeast selection. Um, definitely, like I said, a drier cider. And uh, so far, uh, been very well received. Now that's that's easy when you're not asking people to pay for it. This has all been free samples <laughs> and whatnot, and I'm hoping that that same that same um, sentiment um, uh, shows up when we, we do have bottles for sale, and we're hoping that'll be in the next ten days or so as we sit here in in uh, right before Thanksgiving, two thousand six. So, um, yeah, it's we're we've got a, a lot of really fun ciders in the works. The Stark is our first one, and and we're. We're eager to to um, yeah to see what to, to to share it with people. I think I think they'll really enjoy it. And that's the Spitzenberg apple you said has an interesting history, and you're really excited about that apple. I think the other one you've expressed me you're excited about is Artlet. I don't know if that's for cider necessarily, but um, you know, could you want to talk about this the Spitzenberg? Yeah, yeah. I was asked at the origin events what my favorite apples were, and I, I mentioned Artlet as the first one, as one that I kind of. Discovered when I was at Penn State, I was uh, working in the horticulture department for for Don Smith and, and Dr. Crassweller up at uh, Rock Springs, the horticulture farm. And the one day I had to cut up all the apples that were grown in the variety trial for the pomology class, which I was also enrolled in the class. And so I would cut the apples and take a little <laughs> nibble and see what I thought, you know. And certainly after a while, when you're talking about 48 apple varieties, um, uh, they all start tasting like apple, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, yeah. even the most discerning palate is like, well, that one tastes like apple too. And, um, but for whatever reason, when I got to the Arlet, I was like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a little this different. This is different. Yeah. And so I, I sampled a couple more, I cut a couple more apples and I would go back and, you know, <laughs> I don't know if everyone got to sample Arlet that day because I kept going back and and taking <laughs> yeah. one of the one of the pieces that I cut and be like, oh, that's really good. And you know, after that, I would sneak one out of the cold storage for a roommate of mine who, you know, I, I wouldn't wouldn't tell him anything about him. Like, well, what do you think about this apple? I'm not going to give you any backstory. Just take it, eat it. Let me know what you think. They're like, this is the best apple I've ever had. And so I latched onto that very early on. And and when I came back to to Three Springs to 
to start doing farmers markets and stuff, we try to find this variety and we try to find trees and eventually we found it and put it in the ground and, and discovered that everyone else at our farmers market thought it was as great as what I did, which is never a guarantee, but it was a really nice thing that it happened that way. And so we've, uh, we've got those trees in full production now. It's a very popular variety for us at market. And um, one of our early 2017 blends of Plowman Cider is going to feature the Arlet. We fermented that one to dryness on the skins of Pinot Noir grapes awesome. to add a lot of the, the, the tannins and mouthfeel and some of, the, some of that red wine characteristic. And it's got a beautiful, beautiful rosé kind of color to it. And uh, it'll be conveniently enough called Pinot Noirlet. As uh, which is its two principal parts. Um, So uh, that's you know it's going to be a great dual purpose apple. It's it's got a lot of aroma and a lot of characteristics that we really like, and especially when we're able to add some of that bitter character through the the grape skins that we wouldn't otherwise have as our as our cider apples are are only in their second leaf as we would say right now, and them having been planted in spring of two thousand fifteen. And uh, at the Origins event, when I <laughs> when I brought up Asapa Spitzenberg, it, I think everyone in the crowd went, "Oh, they just swooned." It's such a <laughs> such a great apple. It's it's a, a variety that has a history at Monticello with with uh, being uh, one of the reported favorites of Thomas Jefferson. And um, again, it's got an interesting growth habit. It's not a particularly fun apple to grow in the orchard. Um, neither is McCown, but I like this apple a heck of a lot better. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, it's, a uh, um, you know, high acid and high sugar. We, we've harvested Spitzenberg apples at 24 bricks already, which is extraordinarily high. We, we typically see a lot of our other dessert and culinary apples top out at about, I mean, 16 is generally high for an apple mm-hmm. and to harvest an apple at, at 24 bricks is unusually, unusually, uh, <laughs> sugar crammed so i guess is how you'd say it because yeah. because when it when it eats it doesn't it doesn't eat extraordinarily sweet because it's so high acid it's just it's very well blended it's balanced it's it's high acid and high sugar it ferments out to a high gravity with the sugar it's got the 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 sharpness from the from the the acids to to blend well on its own and, and hold its own in that field as well and um to eat one is it's just a very bold intense apple flavor it's like your favorite ap- apple at 120% intensity is, is the best way I can describe it. It's a, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal apple to work with in the market and in the cider room. And, and I've, I've neglected to discuss this, but kind of how big is your farm now? And, and I mean, you've probably, you're growing probably over 40 varieties at this point, right? Um, what kind of is the depth, the, the, the breadth of your farm at this point? You're doing vegetables, you're doing fruits. Um, kind of w- describe a little bit more about the size and, and all the things that you're growing now. Sure, it's, it's getting bigger. <laughs> it's, yeah, well, it's well, it's in terms of of acreage, it's it's staying much the same, but in terms of diversity, it's increasing in diversity, which, um, you know, makes sense from an environmental standpoint. Um, we, you know, it's it's breaking up uh, pest pressures, and and it's also spreading our economic risk over a number of different crops. Um, this year being a great example of that. So. Um, 200, 250 acres of our farm is devoted to apples. Um, that's 250 out of 450, about 50 varieties are uh, dedicated to peaches. Cherries are about 25 to 30 when you include sour cherries and sweet cherries. Uh, 
you know, but we have the full range of tree fruit, um, plums, apricots, pluots, um, nectarines, and um, a lot of a lot of berries as well. We do uh, uh, right out the window here is a, a a lot of currants and gooseberries, raspberries, table grapes, hardy kiwi, about eight acres of seasonal vegetables, um, lots of blueberries. Uh, we're starting to put some other fun things like elderberry in with a with a and goal you're in that. A lot of fun playing with cider and all this stuff. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> and and you know that uh, not to backtrack too much, but I think that goes into our our kind of philosophy. Uh, at Plowman, um, in terms of taking uh, not only the best of what's available at the farm in any given year, based on you know the diversity is, I mean, this past year in 2016, you know, plums and and apricots and a lot of our cherries were zeroed out completely, um, but we had a great peach crop and it made up for that and it paid a, uh, you know, it, it paid a lot of bills that we were otherwise counting on cherries paying. You know, it's. It's having the diversification is a great way to spread that risk out, but it also is a great opportunity for us at, at Plowman. If, if, you know, all of a sudden we have a really hot week and all of our raspberries come on at once and we take them to market and we're only able to sell half of what we, we harvested on Wednesday and Friday and we come back on Monday and they're looking a little bit homely, well, you know, that's something that it's it'd be a great thing to ferment with. And, um, uh, you know, it's... The cool thing about cider is it's coming into its own now. It used to be this thing when we started looking at cider as, a, as an industry, as a business, where it was like, it was almost like a, a tug of war between beer and wine. It's like, well, you know, it, let's let's line up cider with beer categories, or let's line it up with wine categories. And I think, you know, our our goal as an industry is we've got to get people to think about cider as cider. Like it, it can't think about the apple itself. Right. Exactly. So it's it you know fundamentally is a, a beverage that's made like wine uh generally it's consumed like beer but at the end of the day people have to start thinking about cider as apples as its own thing and um we're gonna try to take essentially a very winemaker's approach to what we do in the cider room and taking the best of what we're given in any given year um you know if if uh, some year our spitzenberg hit that 24 bricks and they're just perfect you know, we might bottle a, a single variety Spitzenberg that year. We might, you know, barrel age it. We might, but it's all going to be based on what the, the juice quality is. And we might never make one again for 20 years because, you know, it could have been a once in a 20 year good crop of Spitzenberg. It's, it's really kind of taking the winemaker's approach to, to provide a beverage that, that, you know, is, I think has a lot of universal appeal to, to beer like or to beer enthusiasts and wine enthusiasts as well. Um, I think it, it can definitely uh, appeal to, to both sides of that. And again, eventually stand on its own as its own thing that we don't have to play this tug of war game all the time. Um, yes, yeah, seems like um, yeah, it seems like it can be a summary of that year's crop almost. And and uh, and it seems like diversity is key to not only sustainability on your farm but also the economics. Um, and that seems that's an interesting thing to think about. It's not just um, you know, it's not just one dimensional. It's a, it's a all part of a, a full system. Right, exactly. And, and you know, another another great part of that is um, we spoke a little bit about farm labor. Well, when you have a diversified farm, you know, your demand for labor is a more even curve. You know, if if you're growing apples and only apples, then 
you need a, a, a lot of people to harvest the apples. That'll be the height of your curve. You'll need a, a, a significant but smaller amount of people to prune those apples in the wintertime. And then between May and September, there's just not as much to do with the apples, really. Um, for a, a you know, a, a, you know, for for our, our guys. That, so you know, when you have a more diversified farm, well, you know, now there's there's uh, work to be done harvesting asparagus in in April and May. There's there's annual vegetables to plant. You know, our our um, cherries start harvesting in mid June, and then that follows into into July, and when July hits, we get peaches, and everything just seems to the the whole farm is better by diversity on so many different levels economically, um, like from a, a a labor demand perspective, spreading that risk out, and being able to provide a wider range of things for our customers. I mean, at the end of the day, they're kind of like our stakeholders. We got to be growing the things that that people are interested in buying, and and those things. Um, are seasonal, but the wider the season, you know, we still have 12 months of bills to pay on, on everything we have around here. And if you're making a crop that's only going to harvest over about six or eight weeks, that makes a serious cash flow problem. So, um, you know, we think that diversity is, is uh, a model for sustainability economically, environmentally, uh, from labor wise cash flow. It just, it's, 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 uh, you know, it's it's an incredible thing, and we're only looking to increase our, our uh, diversity and in, in, in the crops that we're growing around here. How important to you is kind of this agrarian community to the overall society um, as a whole? Kind of, you know, and, and the farm these farming communities. Um, I've I've gotten a sense from talking to a lot of people that, you know, they feel really strongly that you know we need to pay attention to this culture um, in these farming communities, and it's important to integrate that into our overall society. Um, kind of like this interconnected, this interconnectedness of urban to rural, um, you know, trying to get rid of this disconnect that could be occurring. Um, um, do you think that that is important? <laughs> yeah, very, very timely and topical on that on that question. I, and I'll certainly add to that that, that I, I feel like um, I feel very fortunate to to have some perspective on that because, you know, I live my day to day out here in in rural Pennsylvania, and. Uh, the needs of our community are, are a lot different than um, the customers that I uh, interface with on the weekends. And, um, you know, both, both areas have real struggles and problems that they deal with. And um, I don't think it's, it's necessarily the case that, that one community thinks that the other community's problems aren't important. It's just right now, I feel like in our country that people think that their problems won't be solved because the other people's problems are going to be solved. And there isn't a uniting force right now that has come up and said, well, you have real problems, and though you be geographically separated from them, you also too have real problems, and here's a solution that will solve both because both are serious and both are worth addressing. Um, and that really is a very, very difficult thing to do. Um, but, you know, but at the same time, I think agriculture can play a big role in narrowing that gap. 
because um, you know here in in uh, you know my my county and and in Northern Adams County, I don't know that my friends and neighbors necessarily understand why, um, for example, like um, like uh, what why are like Eva potatoes that that are this perfect little like half waxy half starchy awesome potatoes that we grow around here why you know i would be able to charge four dollars a quart for for big eva potatoes when when you know you can get a five pound bag of russets for about the same thing mm -hmm. at the the local grocery store so um but at the same time like you know that that's kind of I I feel like I, I I'm positioned kind of in the middle between both worlds and, um, you know the fact that we're growing these potatoes and sorting them and bringing them to, uh, the markets in in Philadelphia, Baltimore, and D.C. where people have an appreciation for that. Um, at the end of the day, that's strengthening our community because it allows our farm to to hire more people and to build more infrastructure. You know we're buying more boxes from the box factory. You know, we're, we're, you know, it's all, all the, the supporting industries here in Adams County that allow our farm to be successful, whether it's buying ladders or, or buying fence, uh, like trellis posts or all those things, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it takes a, a lot of people in the city supporting the kinds of things we're selling there for us to bring that money back and invest it in our local economy. And so both things are important and and it's just it's, it's a shame there is such a disconnect but um I, I you know i think especially you know in the conversation of cider here in adams county the number one employer is now's foods and there's four factories uh of now's foods here in our county uh they would be the the makers of lucky leaf products like applesauce and apple juice and muscleman the same mm -hmm. uh same company uh, now's foods which is a girl room cooperative um and, you know, so what we do well here in Adams County is, is we grow apples and we process them. And um, that's been the backbone of our economy for a long, long time. And, and that's, to me, one of the exciting things about the future for cider here in Adams County is we're building off of our human capital. You know, we're taking a product that has been successful here for 100 years, which is, is quality apples. Mm -hmm. And... You know, we're taking an industry that's been successful here for about 60 of those years, which is processing them and putting them in a package, uh -huh. you know. So those are the, the you know, it, it, in a lot of ways, the, that's the really exciting thing about uh, cider here in Adams County is it's building on our strengths. And it can really kind of lift up the, the, the local community here in Adams County if we're able to do it as successfully as, a, as uh, we that are kind of makers in this this young and fledgling industry, if we're able to do the kind of things we want to do, it has the potential to, to kind of be a, a bolster to uh, economic activity in, in a rural community that, uh, frankly, kind of needs it. We mm -hmm. really do. And, you know, this is where I've lived and grown up and, and lived my whole life. And, you know, these people are very important to me. And um, I think it can be a real game changer. And I, I you know, I feel like as I continue to, to build our cider business, I think it, it that's part of it.
You know, I, I want it to be successful for, for all of Adams County. And, and, I, and I want it to be a source of kind of civic pride for people in our county. I, I think when they, when they vacation outside of, out of their, their neighborhood, that when people say, well, I'm, I'm from Adams County, and it's, oh, that's, that's like the, the cider place, right? You guys are pretty close to, yeah. to Jack's or to Big Hill or to Plowman's or Good and Ten and people like that. Like, it's becoming a destination now. Right, right. I, I, and, and, you know, I think, I think, you know, a little bit, a little bit of civic pride will go a long way. Obviously, you know, um, rural economic, rural economic growth will go a lot further, but I think both are important. Mm -hmm. And it seems like everyone can connect on good food or, or the idea of, of full flavor and, um, and I, I, you work with Chesapeake Farm to Table, correct? I do, and, yeah. Um, kind of getting that. Um, you know, it's another tool of, of being able to get this good food and this full flavor to people, um, you know, all through Baltimore and all through D.C. and Philadelphia. So, you know, these are these are different tools that it seems like you're utilizing every tool you have in the tool shed. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, what you said reminded me of I heard a little interview with uh, uh, one of my heroes in food is Alton Brown. And I learned a lot of uh <laughs> What little I know about cooking and food, I, I, I owe it all to Alton Brown, who explained those things in a very fun, approachable, but very science-based way, which is right up my alley. And uh, he was interviewed yesterday about uh, the, the, the new program he has on Broadway coming up, and he had mentioned that, you know, in a country that's so divided right now, one of the things that actually brings people together is people want to sit down and enjoy food together. And uh, when the rest of our interaction might be, you know, through our phones on social media, you can't eat a meal on your phone. You have to sit down and join with, with other people and enjoy food, enjoy a meal. And, and it continues to be something that brings people together. And, um, you know, that's, that's, again, I think that's where agriculture and, and good food and the local food economy and, and really the, the Mid-Atlantic Chesapeake Bay food shed, as, as I've heard it very appropriately called, I think it has a role in, 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 in bringing people together and bridging that gap and making sure we all understand that, like, we don't have to be adversarial here. We're on the same team. We all have common goals that if we're sensitive to it, we can all accomplish together. All right. Well, I think, that, I think that's a good place to stop. Do you have anything else you want to say and share with the world? Oh, uh, well, um, no, I just, uh, you know, just kind of along those lines, like, um, I, I think that, that, you know, there's, there's small things we can all do to, to, to make the world more of what we kind of want it to be and, and, and the kind of thing that we hope it can be. And I think in a lot of ways that, that people's diets and their, their food purchasing decisions are a very small but significant way to make some of that change because, um, you know, it, it's it, it's embracing and, and, and having a sense of, of location and, and, and the things that, you know, it just creates ripple effects on, on through, uh, you know, people's local economies and, and regional economies and, um, you know, people's willingness to interact with farms in a very first person or even second person way is what's going to keep uh farmers farming here in the mid-atlantic and um you know increasingly that's going to be important because 
um, with with globalization, uh, we I just think that people have to really be be serious and honest with themselves about who they want to grow their food for them. And there's still people in this world that are crazy enough to do that job, and myself included, and, and all my friends here. It's it's a, a job that you know you've already signed up for really no retirement and, and, and no chance of being independently wealthy. You're doing it because you love it. And, um, but there's an economic side to it. And, and certainly even the people who love their jobs still, still need to, you know, provide for their families. And, and, and if we start losing farms, uh, here in the mid Atlantic, um, we're going to be giving that jobs to places where you might not trust where your food's coming from any longer. So, um, you know, I, I just ask that everybody think about that and and kind of make food purchasing decisions based on the things that and continue to because I should mention because it, it is an important thing I've I've witnessed here in the area. But um, continue to make food purchases um, based on the things that you value and and we'll continue to have a, a future for local agriculture in the Mid-Atlantic. What a wonderful discussion with Ben. I want to thank him for also providing the interlude music to this podcast. He's a great bluegrass musician, and I look forward to hearing his music every time I've turned this podcast on. Our team is excited about 2017. There are so many projects in the works, and our team is really excited to share them as the year progresses. Keep up with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and see where we're off to next. Leave us a review or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. We love your feedback. We love new ideas. Food has a voice. And until next time, this is Zach Kaiser signing off.